What up, world? It's your boy, the Puerto Rican Powers, the Mike Bahari, the podcast version himself, Christian Gerald Ramos, back at it again with a brand new review. And today we're going to review the new Paramount Films studio film, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Now, this summer has been a weird one for movies of cliffhangers. You had Into the uh, Across the Spider Verse, which ended in a cliffhanger. Fast 10, which ended on a cliffhanger after two and a half hours. Both these films are two and a half hours long, and they happen to end the cliffhanger to kind of like split a movie in half because they just have so much to go over, right? So, with Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise wanted to give people a two part film that did not have any cliffhangers because he does not want to leave audiences hanging. See, Tom Cruise's whole MO about movies is I make movies to watch in theaters specifically for big screen crowds like he makes big blockbusters and he tries to make big spectacle films every mission impossible movie has felt important and large because much like the uh Broccoli, uh james bond movies these films by uh i guess produced by tom cruise himself at this point are vehicles to keep this kind of like uh spy genre going and they've been a hit the only like miss i've seen is probably mission impossible 2 which is hit or miss but ever since three and up every movie's become slowly better than the last it has been a steady incline of quality characters casting action uh intrigue the films are not getting boring they're actually very well produced well written and we're going to talk about it so this film was directed by christopher mcquarrie who I believe directed the last film, which was uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. And um, granted, this is like the first Mission Impossible movie post-COVID. So a lot is going on. It's like a whole new chapter where um, we're dealing with uh, modern... This is funny. This movie came out literally before the writer's strike and the SAG strike before the actors, right? Because they are striking because of AI. This film... Like, literal fucking plot is about AI is the enemy. It's almost like uh, foreshadowing what they're actually fighting against. Now, I don't know if you're aware of what's going on with the SAG-AFTRA uh, strike. The um, studio heads are being very shady. People at top, the CEOs are giving themselves crazy bonuses while everybody else below is making poverty wages. That's the misconception that people don't, don't understand. Not every actor is Tom Cruise level rich. Some of them, actually most of them, barely can even afford the union given health insurance. In order to get union insurance, you have to make around 30000 minimum 29000 So there are people who are literally making below poverty line because even though it is a union job, it's a gig economy, you're not really guaranteed contracts for full seasons or sequels it's a lot of like gambling your you're putting your rolling your dice to see if you can actually get something secure so for every robert Downey jr tom cruise jamie fox leonardo dicaprio matt damon ben affleck right for every one of these actors there's a million people way below making less money than the average american or as much as the average american because you know people are struggling out here so Again, when people say, oh, why do we care about millionaires making money? It's not about the millionaires, buddy. This is affecting the common actor who is just a bit player in a big part. you got to understand, what is cinema? You are literally watching a film 
in an ecosystem. It's a world within itself, a self-containing universe. When you watch a movie, it could be a period piece in the West. It could be in feudal Japan. It could be in medieval times in Europe, the Dark Ages. It could be in modern day America. It could be somewhere in South America. You know what I'm saying? Like the settings, the people who are the background characters, the extras, they get paid too. What Hollywood's trying to do is some shady shit with AI is essentially have people sign over their likeness forever, not even for their lives, forever, so they can repurpose the exact same people and use AI to change their costumes or whatever the hell to fit the setting and use their likeness instead of just actually casting people who want to do uh, extra work. Because extra work is legitimate work. You get paid a few hundred dollars for a day or two to just be background people and pretend like having a conversation in the back. And this is how a lot of people get discovered in films and slowly become actors or even move on their ways to directors. Like this is this is all part of the process. So in killing extra work, you're literally just saying, you know what, we don't need actors. We just we just need people who uh, can just fit the background, like kind of like a video game character. We can just create the world. Like I understand it's cost effective. But you're also cutting into the cost of filmmaking and it's at the end of the day, if these billionaires on top can give themselves $24 million plus bonuses, but they have people who are just asking, like writers, just asking for their fair shake for their work, for creating stories. You really trust AI to write scripts? Who do you think codes the AI? <laughs> That's what I understand. So that being said, this is this film had a lot of hiccups, or I won't say hiccups, it had a lot of battles to get through. So during filming, they had a COVID shutdown. And this is the famous COVID shutdown where Tom Cruise was recorded having a serious rant. But it's true. He was trying to follow guidelines so he can keep making the film. And if people in there were breaking the rules, they could shut down the whole movie, jeopardizing this film from ever stepping out. So he had a reason to lash out. Whether you were for or against masks, I don't give a flying fuck. He is trying to work with the biting rules and laws so that he can keep filming his projects and put them out so the masses can have something to watch. During the pandemic, there was nothing much to do besides day drinking, hiking, or going to the movies. And when I used to go to the movies, it was literally empty. Be myself, my buddy, and a few other people in there. It felt like we owned the theater. And what did we manage to see during that pandemic time? I think it was a couple of movies here and there from Christopher Nolan, I think a Tom Cruise film as well, and other like big spectacle movies. Because if I'm gonna leave my house and chance getting you know, COVID at the time, which is, you know, taken seriously in this part of the country because people were dying, you know, it's a legitimate thing at, at the time. Not, I, we understand what it is now and how, you know, viruses slowly can change and get weaker and weaker. But again, I've known people that died from the common flu, from pneumonia, like any virus that's undermined can be the end to anybody. If you just ask anybody over 60 plus, like it's, it's, it's legit. So, that being said, if I went to the cinema, I had to see films that were worth it. Big spectacle blockbusters. So Mission Impossible was definitely the kind of movie I wanted to see in theaters. But it kept getting pushed over until 2023 when it finally got released. And let me just tell you, this film was fun. But not as good as the previous one. Which is okay. I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's not watchable. I'm just saying the previous Mission Impossible film. Mission Impossible Fallout was such a 
crazy good movie. Mind you, it was the same director, Christopher McCary. But in this film, it is Christopher McCary and Eric Jendrinson. Not blaming J Eric Jendrinson for the movies. Uh, I don't want to say dip in quality, because it's not a dip in quality. It's still a really good quality film. It just felt like, again, it's one part of a two-part film. So I'm like, already you're setting yourself up for the next one. And luckily, the next one comes out next year. That was prior to the right of strike. So now we don't know if it's going to push back again. Because let's just look at the timetables here of when these Mission Impossible movies came out. The first one was directed by Brian De Palma. Uh, Brian De Palma with David Cope and Robert Town as a screenwriter. Story by David Cope and Steven Zalen. That came out in 96. I remember that movie vividly because we had it in a neighbor's house on VHS. Uh, then four years later, Mission Impossible 2 directed by John Woo, and again, screenwriters Robert Town, story by Brad Braga and Ronald D. Moore. Of course, producers were both Tom Cruise and Paul, Paula Wagner, so this was actually a Tom Cruise-produced film from the get-go. They probably used Top Gun money to make Mission Impossible, right? And then between Mission Impossible 2 and 3 was six years, my graduating year, 06, and that was J.J. Abrams, and Mission Impossible 3 was really fun. I remember this one vividly in theaters. I loved it. J.J. Uh, Abrams, Robert Orkey, and Alex Hertzman. And again, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner were the producers. So four, we, go from a, we go from a four-year gap to another six-year gap to 2011, a five-year gap for Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, the fourth film of the franchise, directed by Brad Bird, Josh Applebaum, Andre Nemec, and Christopher McQuarrie. So this is where Christopher McQuarrie's Directional skills debut in this franchise since the third, since the fourth film, but he's only part of three directors. All right, this one here is produced by Tom Cruise and now J.J. Abrams and as well as uh, Brian Burke. So, that being said, we are seeing big gaps between films. Right, we're seeing a lot of work is put in, but you know why? It makes sense. If you want to make a quality film, they don't just come out a year or two later. You have to make time for screenwriting post-production, planning. I mean, all these movies are spectacle films, location films, and the cast are always amazingly well casted where everybody gets along well. And of course, they're successful films because they're not rushed. And that's what makes them a must-see film in theaters. In an age where people are streaming most of their movies, this is the one of few movies you would have to go to theaters to watch because it's just so good to see the big screen IMAX or just seeing it in Dolby or just whatever. So... Mission Impossible from 2011 and 2015 had Rogue Nation. Really loved this film. This is where, like, it's really picking up where everyone's watching the Mission Impossible films to the point where, like, all right, we're making probably billion dollar box offices. This was also Christopher McCurry's solo directing. In the previous film, he was writing the script. This one, he's directing it on his own. And from here on, it's just him. And he's the one who wrote the screenplay. And he helped produce with J.J. Abrams and Jake Mayers and uh, Myers and Tom Cruise himself. So it's now become a Chris, Christopher McQuarrie project. And, of course, three years later was um, in 2018 was Mission Impossible Fallout, which is the one that I mentioned earlier. Between Rogue Nation and Fallout, those are really well done in films. And by coincidence, these are Christopher McQuarrie-directed films. So do you understand this? This is like... Where the root of this thing's going. It's gone through many style directors. Brad Bird was great. J.J. Abrams was great. John Woo was great. Brian De Palma was great. But the stylistic uh, ways the films are made from 
Rogue Nation, Fallout, and now Dead Reckoning Part 1, and hopefully Dead Reckoning Part 2. It's higher quality filmmaking from where it was previously because they keep getting better, more dedicated fan base. I mean, let's just say this way. The people who are directing the films now were fans watching the originals in 96 and 2000. Though That's easy enough to say. So this is becoming a passion project where the directors are becoming friends with the star, obviously Tom Cruise. And they're making these quality films, taking their sweet time. And the gaps were mainly because in the beginning, because of, there was a director change. So who knows what could have happened. The director was too busy doing some other projects to do other. So they kept changing directors from Brian, John, JJ to Brad Bird. And then, mind you, Brad Bird's writer, one of his writers was Christopher McCurry. So Brad Bird pretty much co-signed Christopher McCurry to take over the helm of the project. And he's been phenomenal at this. And um, if I look at Christopher McCurry's, uh, let's see, films, uh, let's look at his filmography, shall we? Uh, he did Public Access, Usual Suspects, that was him, nice. The Way of the Gun, Valkyrie, The Tourist, Jack Reacher, great. Jack Reacher, the Giants, uh, no, J Jack the Giant Slayer, that's a kid's movie, but it looks still good. Edge of Tomorrow, so, okay, so he directed Edge of Tomorrow, that actually makes sense, because Tom Cruise is also leading that film. And then Mission Impossible series, of course, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, The Mummy, uh, the remake, well, we won't talk about that one. Uh, so pretty much he is Tom Cruise's, like, Scorsese to Leonardo DiCaprio, right? He is the guy that Tom Cruise, uh, has confidence will be the guy to help because he's directed all of Cruz's top, even directed Top Gun Maverick. So this guy literally is Tom Cruise's guy. Like he's been there from the get-go as a writer and now he's here as a director. It only makes sense that's where he's going and then like, it's phenomenal. So, where are we in the plot of this film? So enough of this history lesson, enough of this Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. The plot is an experimental AI sinks a uh, next-generation Russian submarine called the Sevastopol, which was a testing a new navigation system using dead reckoning by tricking it into firing a torpedo at itself. That sequence was crazy. This was a good 15 minutes. This was the, not, not even the whole cold opening of the film, but it was a big part of the cold opening. IMF agent Ethan Hunt is tasked with a mission to retrieve half of the cruciform key because it's... AI uses two keys, right? It uses two keys to make one key for everyone's safety. And it creates, I guess you could say it's like a nuke, right? It has a key from here to key there simultaneously together to work. Without one or the other, they're useless together. They can end everything. So this AI is a artificially intelligent weapon that can be anywhere and everywhere, which is why it's very much like what we're talking about with the writers striking AI technology destroying, and not just the writers in, in Hollywood and people in Hollywood in general, but AI is slowly uh, trying to take over a lot of jobs and for people that human people have normally done over these century of man, modern mankind. And I, I for one, have seen so many movies with AI, artificial intelligence, just like you know, terminating the world, wink, wink, nod, nod, and nod. I never trusted AI. I never can. I just can't trust artificial intelligence that takes the life of its own. It's like Frankenstein's monster, right? It just takes over. So, where do we go from here? Uh, so, Ethan travels to the empty quarter of the Arabian Desert where he obtains half the key from Isla. And back in the United States, Ethan infiltrates a meeting of the U.S. intelligence community 
where officials of various intelligence agencies, including the CIA director himself, Eugene Kittredge, and director of national intelligence, Dillinger, discuss an experimental AI referred to as the Entity. The Entity has become, again, self-intelligent. This is what happens when you try to control, when you try to play God and try to control robots. They eventually adapt and learn. And this is where AI gets crazy. And, and this is the whole film. It's, it's originally designed to sabotage digital systems. The entity went rogue. <laughs> of course, it achieved sentience. The ultimate fear I have is a sentient robot and infiltrated the major defense military systems and intelligence networks of the world. This thing is its own hacker. It doesn't need a person behind to do any of this. This is happening on its own because it's learning. It's becoming uh, its own self-sustaining doomsday device, right? So, well, this is all happening. There's a big, big adventure of the film we will meet the cast. But before I keep going, right, we have the cast. This movie was produced. It's based on the Mission Impossible by Bruce Geller Books. It is produced by Tom Cruise and Christopher McCurry. Shocker there. Starring Tom Cruise himself. Haley Atwell, Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson, Vanessa Kirby, Issei Morales, Pam Clementinth from Guardians, if you don't know who she is, Mariela Gadiga, and Henry Cerny. That right there is an all-star cast of good actors. And I'm just like, across the board... Uh, I mean, a lot of Marvel actors, actually. Uh, Haley Elizabeth, Elizabeth Atwell, who we all know as Peggy Carter from the Captain America franchise and also her own Agent Carter show. Um, Ving Rhames has been in these movies forever. Uh, Simon Pegg from many films like Star Trek and Shaun of the Dead fame, and obviously he's been in a lot more films than that, but I'm just naming a couple. Rebecca Louise Ferguson Syndrome is a Swedish actress, but what was she in the previous Mission Fossil films? Let's see here. Uh, no, not, uh, yes, she was. She was in Rogue Nation in 2015. So there's a, so she wasn't in the. Oh, and she was in Fallout. See, I gotta rewatch these films because these films have come out again, four to five years apart, and a lot of the cast aren't fresh. But these characters are all fresh in your head when you see them back to back because they are reoccurring people and. It's great to see continuity and kind of like, sorry to make the comparison, the MCU or Fast and Furious. It's a world-building movie where these people, these agents are all part of this family. I know, cue the Don Toretto line, but they are more than just a team. They're, they're integral to each other. And um, this was a Skydance production films with TC Productions, Paramount Pictures, of course, Tom Cruise, literally, I swear to God, he, him and Transformers, the only thing keeping Paramount Pictures uh, going and whatever Nick films come out. But the movie had a budget of $291 million. So far has made $239.4 million. It's only been out a week, and it's already made almost its entire budget. I would say the end of the month, it's probably going to cross half a billion, hopefully more, because it was a good film. And I, I'm not going to sit here and describe the entire film. It's pretty much... The mission where they have to find the key and they have to get agents and to have people join their team and everyone here plays their part uh Haley atwell plays like a i guess a burglar who is so good at her job that pretty much the imf uh recruiter and um of course we have uh palm who is the i guess the villain's 
bodyguard or one of the villains' bodyguard. Uh, let's see. Isai Morales is the villain here who was... Oh, he's the same age as Tom Cruise. I don't wonder. This guy, this guy is a very evil... I mean, first off, Isai is one of my people. He's a Puerto Rican, he's a Puerto Rican actor from Brooklyn. But he plays a mean villain. And I'm pretty sure that he was cast after his great breakout role in the Ozark as the main cartel leader there. And, um, man, he's not, he's not been in a previous Mission Impossible film. And quite frankly, it's funny enough, him and Tom Cruise were literally literally both in New York City the exact same time, months apart. He says here, well, Isai Morales and Tom Cruise have never worked together prior to Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. They are nonetheless true contemporaries as Cruise and Morales were both born in New York in 1962, approximately three, three months apart. So they're literally, like, perfectly the same age. And they, they play off each other, the chemistry. Like, you can feel like... Even though these are this is the first movie they're together, it felt like a legit rivalry. Like this guy felt like the blow fell to to James Bond. Like they just two good looking dudes who happen to be on the opposite side of the law and doing their own thing. And he is playing this character named Gabriel, who is an old, I guess you can say, friend turned enemy, who killed one of uh, Cruz's love interests. And he's obviously, you know, uh, Ethan Hawke's. Uh, Ethan Hawke, sorry, <laughs> Ron, Ron, I confused an actor with a first name, Ethan Hunt's, uh, I guess, main nemesis, there we go, that's what I'm looking for here, I'm tripping on the words, I'm tired here from a long day's work, and they're trying to sabotage his plans and get control, because it's essentially easy as pie, like, whoever controls, whatever government controls this weapon controls the world, like, this is the one in, one of a kind smart nuke, and everyone's fighting to get it it's a big worldwide treasure hunt for these keys and the movie is just a great adventure and they do travel a lot but they don't travel as much as i thought they were going to travel it really is between just a couple locations but i feel like that's more cost effective that way but it still feels grandiose like oh you're going through your entire like you know uh african desert here and you're going through uh the middle east you're going through europe and having this crazy scene of the train and Vanessa Kirby plays a great, I don't, I don't want to say a villain, antagonist for sure. She's uh, She's got a team of her own and uh, her own bodyguard who is uh, quite the character played by, what is his name? He, is he even credited here? I'm looking at this IMDb page, man. The only credit I think that's super uh, famous, but he has a, she has a bodyguard and Pond Plymouth works as well for her. And... No, actually, no. Palm works for Gabriel. So you have multiple parties, like a web of freaking uh, who knows who. And the one thing they have in common is they all hate Ethan Hunt equally. And, <laughs> and they don't want him to get it because he plays for, he's essentially the very heroic character. He's not selfish. He's not trying to rule the world where other people are trying to sell this weapon to, to whoever has the highest bid. He doesn't want to even give it to our own government. Doesn't trust, he even gas his own SCI director to go in with a face mask. The typical Mission Impossible face mask that he takes off and reveals his true identity uh, to uh, debrief with the agent because one of the leaders there uh, cannot be trusted. So, and it was true. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those films where like a little plot twist happened. Not a huge one, but one you kind of saw coming with the director of the I believe, not CIA, the director of the CIA is played uh, Eugene Ketheridge. He's played by Henry Cerny. Uh, is the one guy he does trust. It's his boss that happens to be played by Carrie Ells, 
who Carrie Ellis plays essentially is a director of. Let me double check here because I don't want to. I, I want to guide you guys. Uh, Carrie Ellis was in. Yes, I know what he's. He is playing Dun Denlinger, who is the leader of. Uh, is it the FBI? What is his actual? He's just says Dellinger. Okay, but yeah, he's kind of the asshole a leader here, who, uh, who is uh, double crossing the government because obviously every villain has this, and that's a trope that like is again classic trope, but. It's almost needed. You gotta have some kind of have a classic trope here and there, and it's not bad. But the film is very action packed. I enjoy this film very much. It was a lot of good storytelling through and through. Everyone, it's a it's a big uh, rat race. Uh, the whole film is a giant rat race. Um, everyone added to it. Every, but you know the one nitpick. Here we go. The one nitpick. I think if Tom Cruise knew the Fast and Furious movie was gonna be the exact same action sequence through Rome. I swear to God, was there like a discount in Italy with filming in Rome? They filmed almost the same exact sequence down those steps, down that fountain. I swear to God, it fast tended. And I'm just like, wow, this is going to get old very quick. That Every place is going to film in Rome, do the exact same chase sequences, go through the exact same um, steps that everyone just hangs out in. And it's almost like, man... If these studios only knew they were making competing sequences, they would not have, they would have changed it on the fly. But hey, that's the game of Hollywood. Everyone has similar ideas sometimes. It just it is what it is. But this movie was very fun to watch in theaters. What I recommend you see in theaters, it's a little long in the tooth. And I'll tell you why. I know it's two and a half hours long movie. That being said, the last one from 2018 did not feel like it was dragging at points. It really just flown with action and, and drama and just carried on through the story here is more of like yeah we got a lot of like generic villain tropes from back in old days of spy films but we're gonna modernize some certain aspects of it with newer tech and ai and stuff it, again that's where i'm just like how oh, this movie is good but not the best one i've seen in ages and rogue agent was my favorite of all the movies but fallout was also pretty really good but this one here is just like okay the quality's dipping but i hope the second part ties in it kind of like brings up everything uh it just kind of brings everything together so let's go by the casting again tom cruise is ethan hunt imf agent leader of the operative teams Haley atwell is grace a burglar and ethan is an ally christopher mccurry described atwell's character as the destructive force of nature while atwell explained that her character's loyalties are somewhat ambiguous Vin Rames is Luther Stickwell, an IMF computer technician, Hunt's best friend and member of his team. Obviously, he's been there from day one. That guy is definitely a true best friend. Simon Pegg, played by, uh, who plays Benji Dunn, an IMF technician, field agent, and a member of Hunt's team. He's a newer member from 2015, but my God, does he add so much to this cast. He really adds the designated, logical, normal person who's not nuts. Like He just uses logic like, oh my God. I know that I'm. This, we're going to do this, but this seems maddening. Like he is the audience in the film, and I love that, like the self awareness of it. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson is Isla Foss. She's been a disinvolved member of I, uh, MI6, agent who allied with Hunt's team during Rogue Nation in 2015 and Fallout in 2018. See, so that ties into those films. She was labeled as deceased by the arms dealer originally portrayed by Vanessa Redgrave from the first film, and but she came back and she's just been in hiding. 
So she just was playing dead to just escape. Isaiah Morales is Gabriel, powerful terrorist. Ethan's adversary appears to be working with the entity, an all-powerful AI system to rule the world. He and Ethan had a faithful encounter with each other prior to Ethan becoming an IMF agent. So this is where the flashback scene, where I swore it could have happened in the previous films, like way back when, but no, it's just before he was even a IMF. It was when he was just, just a regular government agent. So like, this is all predating the every Mission Impossible movie, but they kind of like, not retcon, but they added context to it to make it seem like, like Ga the, the character Gabriel felt like a, you know, a Moriarty to Sherlock. He just, he just fits. And it wasn't too like, they didn't try too hard, so I'm trying to say. There we go. In Palm Clements, if, as, as Paris, a French assassin who works for Gabriel, she plays typical, you know, femme fatale character. I mean, I don't say typical, because she's not really a femme fatale. She's, I mean, she is a femme who's a fatale, but she isn't... Anywho. Uh, <laughs> that being said, she's a badass in this movie. She doesn't have any lines, but she definitely, as a character, is like henchwoman, you know, head muscled for Gabriel who can kick some ass. Mariella Garriga is Mary, a woman, a Mary, a woman, Ethan and Gabriel's past, seen only in brief flashbacks. Uh, so she was literally just, I guess, the girlfriend or love interest that was killed. Uh, Henry Zerny is Eugene Kittredge, director of IMF and CIA, last seen in Mission Impossible, 1996. So this guy was in the very first Mission Impossible film. And they bring him back now, these decades later, not even joking around. So this kind of makes me want to binge. I have Paramount Plus binge the entire Mission Impossible movies and kind of refresh my mind again. So by the time next year comes, when I see Day of Reckoning uh, Part 2, it, it'll be all very fresh. So, again, the fact that you want to go back and watch old films, that says a lot about this film. If, that, if it's the quality, it's the continuity, it's the storytelling. It's bringing back old characters from previous franchises who were like, oh, remember me? I was a character in this film. See, it's all this world building that he's done. He, he's had 30 years to do this shit, and it's 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 great how he does it. Uh, Shia with him as Jasper Briggs and enforced with the community tasking with Ethan Hunt. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see, Carrie Ells, Dellinger, Director of National Intelligence. Yes. That guy. He's the double crosser. Who would have thought? Uh, Greg Tarzan Davis is Degas, Briggs partner, and Frederick Schmidt is Zola Misopolis, Alana's brother. Um, many additional characters here. Great story with how they things. I'm not even going to tell you the film because it's two and a half hours. You go ahead and watch it. It's, I'm just giving you my things that jump at me. The cast is great. The locations, the Polish bridge controversy, all oh, those controversy with this scene there. During the pre-production in late 2019, the Swiss government refused to authorize any explosions for the train sequence in the Alps. There's a big train sequence where the bridge is getting collapsed. And as a result, the Sky Dance Media Production Team embarked on location scoutings in different countries to find an unwanted railway bridge among those asked to help with staging a full-scale train crash as Polish-American film producer Andrew Exner uh, was looking for in 2019 November, the Polish State Railways proposed Esner use a 151-meter, 492-foot-long, uh, if you, you don't know the metric system, uh, 19, uh, 1908 German-era riveted truss bridge on Lake Pichowick, oh, I'm going to butcher this shit, Pichowick, yeah, Pichowicki, there we go. 
producers, including Macari, landed in southern Poland, accompanied in deep secrecy by officers of the Polish engineering troops. Macari documented the visit on IG, so Instagram. So they wanted to physically blow stuff up. No CGI, just a big budget film. And that train sequence definitely borrowed from the Uncharted video game sequence. Like they not copied that sequence that happened in the game, but very much inspired by. If they, if I ever do say so myself, so I, I wanted, I want to believe somebody in the writing team was like a gamer and like they said, you know what, uh, Tom, I have a great idea. First, hear me out. Train is falling slowly, and you have to climb your way. Like, oh come on, let's be honest. I just hope that they, <laughs> they acknowledge what the nod they gave, and that's all I'm gonna say. But yeah, this movie was amazing. I'd say it's a four and a half out of five stars. My nitpicks are ridiculously uh, trivial and not that important, but I had a great time in the theaters of the movie. Again, slow at certain points, but that's good for a two and a half hour movie because it cannot keep you on the edge of the seat the entire time. There has to be moments where it has to crescendo to rise again to get you like really amped up. And yeah, this has been my long-winded review of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1. Give me the review. I went in full detail. I hope I didn't just murmur and start bullshitting for half an hour. But I kind of gave you an idea. Like, this movie was released in theaters uh, with Paramount Pictures and IMAX, Dolby Cinema, 4DX, ScreenX, RPX, and any other premium formats using X. <laughs> Previously set for release in tw uh, July 23rd, 2021, but then pushed back um, because of reasons. Uh, so the next one comes out next year, exactly a year apart, and uh, I'm so excited for that shit to come out. Like, I don't have to wait two, three years for the next movie to come out. It's literally supposed to come out the following summer. Same month, too, in uh, June 28th. So a year and a couple of days over from now. So I can handle that. I can't wait till next summer. It'll be fun to see. But yeah, this has been my review. This has been the Podcast Mystery Show. Thank y'all for tuning in. For those who really care for these reviews, for those who know, I'm sorry if I overextended my my opinions on it because I, I think a lot of it was just me explaining the whole history of the Mission Impossible franchise. And will I review the first film and kind of like onwards review? I don't know if I want to do the entire film franchise for Mission Impossible because I haven't done older franchises yet. I could do reviews for those, but I mean, I have Paramount Plus. I, I also want to do the Scream movies reviews, but I'm... I'm debating. I think if I want to do any kind of older movies, uh, this might be one of the few franchises I might actually try. So we'll see. Uh, that being said, thank you all for tuning in as always. Take care. I'm out.